here, uh, but we'll just finish 1 John uh, this morning. So we'll look at verses 18 through 21. I will read verses 18 to 21. So, the God we know. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God, we're thankful for the assurances that you give us in your word, and we're thankful for this book of assurance that has taught us to be reminded and to know that we have eternal life. Thank you that the knowledge of eternal life is based upon who Christ is and what he has done for us. And so may we cling to the truth of who Jesus is. Help us to know that we know him. Help us to know that he is ours and we are his. Help us to know that he is fully God and fully man. And if there are any here, any who come to try and take that away, help us to be reminded of what we know and where that truth lies. Help us to be watchful against heresy. Help us to be watchful against anything that takes away from your blessed gospel in Christ Jesus. And we pray today that you would give your people assurance. We still struggle with sin, but help us to know that sin does not have dominion. We struggle with dealing with this world and the threats of the devil, but help us to know we are of you and not of the world. And help us to know that we know the one true God in Christ Jesus. So thank you for the minds that you give to us. Thank you for the renewed minds that you give to us and renewed wills as well. And we ask and pray that you'd help us to know more of you this day. And as we know more of you, may you uplift us and encourage us with your word. So be pleased to strengthen your saints this day, encourage your saints this day. We pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. Please give them new life, we pray. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, John's main application throughout this entire letter has been the command to know. Not so much to do, although there are many commands that talk about doing in 1 John. But the main one is knowing what we ought to know, who we ought to rest in, the knowledge that we ought to rest in as we consider who we are and who we are in the one that we know. You see, knowing is meant to be an assurance for us. Sometimes someone can come along and say something that goes against what we know. And if we begin to follow what that person says, we can be shaken off our grounding. We can be shaken off the, the, the moorings uh, in the gospel of free and sovereign grace. And so John is writing to deal with that threat. He's writing to remind and encourage his hearers at Ephesus that they know God that they know the one true Christ, that they have eternal life. And his final words, no surprise, are all about knowing. We need to know different things. And he reminds us and uh, kind of recaps what we've seen throughout this letter by these three exhortations or three encouragements, I should say, to know and what we already know. Because remember, this book is all about assurance. It's all about knowing that we have eternal life. And so as he wraps up this letter, we see the main thesis in verse 13, this knowledge of eternal life. Then he talks about praying in light of that. What can our eternal life look like in this present world? But then he gives some final thoughts regarding the son and our relation to him. Because if you do not know the son as he is revealed in the scriptures, 
then you do not have God at all. Then you do not have assurance because we must believe that he is the Christ and we must believe that he is the son of God. And so the problem has been clear. The problem has been clear throughout this entire letter. The problem is when one does not know the son of God. A problem with these heretics throughout the book. They claim to know God, but in reality, they have a idol. In reality, it is a false God. In reality, uh, they are not worshiping the one true God in Jesus Christ aright. Even though they say Jesus, it is not the Jesus of the scriptures. Now, it is a problem for all who do not know Christ. They do not know the one true God in Jesus Christ. Or better, they reject the one true God in Jesus Christ. It's important to know, to believe upon his name, to know who this one is. But we must confess as well, even for God's people, true people, those with remaining corruption, we probably don't know Christ as much as we ought. We know him by faith. We know who he is. We've entered in. It's still weak faith, but we must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, growing in who he is, recognizing what he has done, growing in the person and work, the knowledge of the person and work of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished for us, and what that then means for us as the people of God. Because it's an unfortunate reality in the present climate in which we live that there are many conservative churches who have Christological problems. Many conservative churches who have Trinitarian problems. And as we've seen throughout this letter, John is Trinitarian through and through. And John is defending the deity of Christ, but also defending the humanity of Christ as well as, he is, as Ephesus is threatened by these false teachers. Who Christ is has important application when it comes to our identity and our assurance. Because if you don't have Christ, you have no assurance. And so in verses 18 through 21, John closes by reminding the Ephesians who they are and who they know. And we see this by way of these three indicatives, these three truths, what we know. He wants to remind them what they know. And there are three things, and they'll be our three headings this morning. First of all, he wants us to know that we do not sin, verse 18. Secondly, he wants us to know that we are of God, verse 19. And then lastly, he wants us to know that we know the Son of God, so that we do not sin, to know that we do not sin, to know that we are of God, and to know that we know the Son of God. So let's first look at knowing that we do not sin in verse 18. And again, contextually, he's just talked about prayer. He's just talked about prayer in general, then dealing with the reality of sin in the life of a believer and what that looks like, sin unto death versus sin not leading to death. Thankfully, God hears our prayers. God answers our prayers when they are prayed according to his will. He does talk about, I think implied in those verses, the serious reality of apostasy, uh, those who commit the sin leading to death. Uh, and as we saw, it is similar to the sin, uh, unforgivable sin. Uh, it's talking about one who is hostile, one who is denying who Jesus is, even as the heretics were uh, in 1 John. But then he again closes with these encouragements. What we know versus what the heretics say. What we know, what do we know? We know, verse 18, that whoever is born of God does not sin. What do we need to know so that our assurance is not shaken. Well, whoever is born of God. And as we see, like a good summary, he's wrapping up everything that he has said throughout this letter. 
and he's talked about how we are born of God. We're not born of ourselves, but we have been effectually called. It's what's called the new birth. We see this in John 3. We are born of God. We're not born of ourselves, but God is the one who regenerates. God is the one who gives us that new birth. God is the one who makes us alive and not we ourselves. So we've seen it in 229, 3.9, 4.7, 5.1, and 5.4, and other places in the scriptures as well, in John's gospel as well. And we've seen what it means to be born of God. Practice righteousness, love one another, and believe that Jesus is the Christ. But something else that characterizes those who are born of God is that those who are born of God do not sin. This is what he says in 1 John 3, 9. He says, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, as we looked at it then in 1 John 3, it's good to remind ourselves now that we, what he's saying here and what he's saying in 1 John 5 and 3 is not that he's teaching sinless perfection, but what he's teaching is that the people of God are no longer under sin's dominion. The people of God are no longer characterized by sin. Yes, we still struggle with actual sins. I mean, he's aware of that. He understands that. We've seen that in 1 John 1, and we saw it last time in 1 John 5, 16. But the point is, our life is no longer characterized by it. Our life and our identity is now in Jesus Christ. We struggle with sin, but we can confess it to Christ. We struggle with remaining corruption, but we are Christ's in, uh, because of what he has done. We're no longer a slave to sin, but we are a slave to righteousness in Jesus Christ. So he's not teaching sinless perfection on this side of heaven. Thankfully, when we get to heaven, we're not going to sin anymore. But on this side of heaven, we still struggle with sin, but we're no longer characterized by sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Our identity is no longer tied with it. And thankfully, those who are born of God are kept and protected. So we struggle with sin, but we're also kept and protected from the wicked one. He says, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Now I must confess, he who has been born of God keeps himself that is difficult to translate. There is ink spilt on what is, uh, what is being referred to here. And there's two ways to take it. One, is it referring to the self-discipline in sanctification by the Christian? One who keeps himself. That seems to be the way the New King James takes it. But others, the ESV perhaps, takes it as it's he, capital H. He who has been born of God and certainly those, uh, we believe that believers are born of God, but we also recognize that there is the one who has been eternally begotten of the Father. And that language is used in 5.1, distinguishing whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, talking about believers, everyone who loves him who begot the Father, loves him who is begotten of him. So talking about the begetter, the Father, talking about the eternally begotten one, the Son, but also talking about us, who received that, uh, be, that regeneration as well. So is it Christ in verse 18, or is it us? I do think it's a both-and situation, but I think the main focus in verse 18, though, is us. I think the translation, he who has been born of God keeps 
himself. And the reason I take it in that way is in light of the context of the entire letter. The way the rest of the other places where this word guard or keeps is used throughout the letter has to do with things like keeping the commandments. And as we saw throughout this letter, what's a test of assurance? Whether or not we keep the commandments. So how do we keep? How, do we, how are we assured? How do we know that we are his? How do we know that we are born of God? He says many times when we keep his commandments. Not perfectly, not in our own power, but nonetheless, if we seek to honor God according to his commandments, we can have assurance and we keep and protect ourselves from sin. If we seek to do what God has said, seek to honor him, if we seek to do what is pleasing in his sight, hopefully we can shun sin and do what is pleasing in his sight. But we also must be honest with ourselves as well. We don't keep ourselves in our own strength. That's why I think it's a bit of a both and situation. Because we know that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. Not to mention John 17 in the high priestly prayer. You can turn with me to John 17. Jesus as the high priest who prays for his people. In John 17 verses 12 through 15, 12 through 16, we see that Jesus is praying for us. We see that he is the one who is keeping us. So we keep ourselves in the truth, but it's Christ who keeps us as well. And so it says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the word world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus prays for his people. Jesus is praying for his people even now. So we are kept and protected in him. But the command seems to be whoever has been born of God, we keep ourselves, we assure ourselves that we are born of God as we seek to honor him according to his commandments. Not as a way of salvation, but as an assurance and evidence that we are Christ's. William Tyndale says, and as men of war, they ever keep watch and prepare themselves unto war and put on the armor of God, that which is God's word, the shield of faith, the helmet of hope, and harness themselves with the meditation of those things which Christ suffered for us, and with the samples of all saints that followed him, and think earnestly that it is their part to live as purely as the best, and come after as fast as they can. And yet in all their works, uh, they acknowledge themselves sinners, as long as one jot of the perf uh, perfectness that was in the deeds of Christ is lacking in theirs. So the devil cannot touch the hearts of them, neither with pride nor vainglory of pure living, neither to make them consenting unto the flesh in gross sins, if at a time they be taken tardy and catch and fall. So he understands we're watchful, we stand on guard, we put on the armor of God, but we do so in understanding that there's st still sin in our remaining corruption. So we keep ourselves in the truth. We keep ourselves in God. It's a sign that we are born of God. And thankfully, we truly are kept from the evil one. He says that. And the wicked one does not touch him. 
The wicked one cannot touch the people of God. Satan can buffet. Trials can come, but Satan has no power over the people of God. How often throughout the book has John said, you have overcome. You have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the wicked one. You have overcome the devil. You have overcome. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but he cannot overtake the people of God. We can be tempted. We can uh, be threatened. We can be buffeted, but we cannot be overtaken. He cannot and does not touch us. We cannot be snatched from the hands of Christ. We cannot be snatched from the good shepherd. And so this is the assurance that John is giving his people. Don't worry. Don't fear. We are the ones who are born of God. We do not sin. We are Christ. We keep the commandments uh, flowing out of our uh, regeneration. And the wicked one cannot overtake us. And all this is meant to be is an encouragement for them especially in light of the fact that we still struggle with sin and in light of the fact that the devil still prowls around. He can't touch us. He cannot touch us, brethren. And also, our life is no longer characterized by sin. Again, all of this is meant to be reflection. I'm not all about being introspective all the time because sometimes we can go too far in that way. But nonetheless, there are times in the scriptures where it says we must reflect. We must know, we must contemplate, we must think. And that's exactly the application that he gives here. This is the purpose that he has. If you are in Christ, you cannot be in the devil. If you are a child of God, you are not the child of the devil. As he talked about in 1 John 3.10, how are they manifest? What does that look like? Those who are of Christ will practice righteousness. Those who are not of Christ will will not practice righteousness. Those who are of Christ will believe in the name of the Son of God. Those who are not of Christ will not believe in the name of the Son of God. And when you consider the fact that we still struggle with sins, isn't this just what a sensitive soul needs to hear? That we are born of God and we do not sin. We are born of God and we're no longer characterized by sin. We are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Here's who we are. Here's what we look like. The devil cannot touch us. He wants us to know that we do not sin and he wants us to know that the wicked one cannot get to us. So that is point one, we do not sin. Let's then look secondly in verse 19. We see, we know that we are of God. So transitioning perhaps uh, to highlight not just that we're born of God, but that we belong to God. We are God's people. And so we see in verse 19, again, this repeated, we know that we are of God. Christians who have believed have this assurance, this covenant assurance that our God is our God and we are his people. He is our God and we are his people. That is one of the blessings of covenant. It's covenant language. It's used in uh, the new covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31 is used uh, in other places as well throughout the prophets. It's used in Hebrews 8 and 10 to describe the new covenant in which God's people have entered into with Christ. So it highlights that we are his, not the heretics. All this is a bit of a subtle dig against the heretics, right? We are his, not these guys. We are Christ. We are of God. They are not. They say they are of God, but in reality, they are of something else. In reality, they lie under the sway of the wicked one. They are of the world. Verse 19, we are of God. 
But there is something else that is antithetical to that. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The wicked one does have power. Nobody denies that. The wicked one is, you know, has sinned from the beginning. The wicked one does have children in this world. I mean, Jesus calls the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Again, that's tough language for our modern delicate minds. And even 1 John 3.10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. I mean, there's clearly a distinction that is there. Children of God and children of the devil. So there are those of the whole world who lie under the sway of the wicked one. He has power in this way. And notice that John does discriminate here. There are believers in the world. Now, believers live in the world as we distinguish the meaning of the word world. I mean, world can just refer to the geography or the geographical features, the world in which we live. It can refer to Jew and Gentile. I mean, to a Jew, the world was Gentiles. But can also be, as we saw in 1 John 2, characterized by sin. I mean, what is the world? The world is the, 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 um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And this world is going to pass away. And so what he's talking about here is that life that is characterized by sin, they're under the sway of the one who has sinned from the beginning. They're sinning themselves. And so what it means is even though there's this antithesis that we see, it doesn't mean God's people go out into the bush and start their own colony. That's not what this means. I mean, Jesus prays, Father, I pray that you do not take them out of the world, but I pray that you protect them from the evil one. The point is we don't sin with the world, but we still have jobs that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves in the world that God has made, in the enterprising world in which we live, in the societies in which we live. Those aren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but the point is we don't sin with the world. We live in the world, but we are not of the world, but recognizing that there is a difference between the redeemed, the regenerate, and the unregenerate as well. And what is he saying here by implication? That the false teachers are of the world. He has no problems discriminating in this way, especially when there is a threat to the church of Christ. John writes to assure, but he also has some teeth, doesn't he? He's trying to comfort the lambs. He's trying to encourage the saints, but he's also dealing with the wolves. A shepherd speaks differently to a wolf than he does to a sheep. A shepherd speaks with more teeth to a wolf and kindness to his flock. And so that is implied here. It is implied that they are of the world. We know God. They are of the world. It is in Christ that we've overcome. In Christ, we have overcome the wicked one. Overcoming comes up a lot in this book as well. First John 2, 1 John 4, 1 John 5, and it is in Jesus Christ as he has been revealed. Not an esoteric, special language that these men thought they had and had this word from God, and their word from God taught them that Jesus did not come in the flesh. It is we who are of God. We are the heavenly people. That's the emphasis. That is the application. We are not of the world, <laughs> brethren. We are not characterized by the world. Our primary identity is in Jesus Christ. We are sojourners in the world. We live in this world, but heaven is our home. 
Heaven is our citizenship. That is where our ultimate citizenship lies. This world in its sinfulness, I mean, this world is going to pass away. And we are no longer characterized by it because we are not passing away, are we? Christ Jesus died and rose again, and we're not going to pass away. But the world is passing away. All those who are of Christ will not pass away, but those who are of the world shall pass away. And the reason we shall not pass away is because we know the one true God and have life in him, and we are of him and in him. One writer says, without him, without Christ, we can neither know God nor overcome sin. And so when someone comes along and starts talking in a certain way and says, here's how you know God, here's what it means to really be of God, doubts can creep in. And so people need that assurance and reminder. John is saying that it is to you, the church, that you are of God. We know that we are of God. We know that we are Christ, not with what these other ones say. And once again, isn't that exactly what an anxious soul needs to hear? Don't listen to these guys. They might look nice. They might smell nice. They might sound nice. They might have a nice car and a nice house and nice things and sound sophisticated. They might talk about their wonderful experiences that they have. Don't listen to them. They might walk in uh, looking great, but they don't smell of sulfur. But once they start speaking, you see the sulfur coming out of their mouth. They are not of God. They're of the devil. They are not of God, but they are of the world. But you, brethren are Christ's, and you are a heavenly people. That's what we need to know, that we are of God. So that's our second point, that we know we are of God. Let's then look at our final point, that we know the Son of God, in verses 20 and 21. And notice he again comes back to Christ. What is our foundation? It's always in Jesus Christ. And he says, we know that the Son of God has come. He's talking about the incarnation here. The heretics denied that. Their view was that Jesus in his body was just a phantom. It was just a hologram. He didn't actually come in the flesh. You see, even John here, before all the later Christological heresies in church history, which help tighten up and define language regarding who Jesus is, he's dealing with issues. And we see here the Trinitarian uh, distinctions. We see the recognition of the one essence and three persons, but also the recognition that the one who is the Son of God really did come. He beheld him. He saw him. He touched him. He looked upon him. He all uses all that witness, observe, uh, that the sensory language at the beginning of the book for a reason, because the heretics said, nah, he didn't come in the flesh. He didn't actually come in the flesh. He just only appeared to come in the flesh. So he's writing to deal with that very thing. And that's why he emphasizes in 1 John 4, 7. We talk about loving God and knowing God. Who does not love God does not know God. And what is love then? It's that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus really was a man. Jesus really, the Son of God, really took on a human nature. He didn't just appear. It also wasn't some heavenly flesh that he brought with him. No, it was actual flesh and blood. The one who is God took on a human nature. Yet he was all the essential properties and common infirmities, yet without sin. We needed the mediator to be man. Because it's man who sinned against God. 
but we know that man needs to be perfect to be right with God, and only one is perfect, namely God. God in his infinite wisdom, we see the salvation come from the one who is both God and man, in the one person, the Son. And so the Son of God has come. We know he has come. We know that he was born of a virgin. We know that he really was fully God and fully man. We know these very things. The heretics are wrong here. We know the Son of God has come. And also notice, also another dig against those heretics, has given us an understanding. What was their claim to fame? Knowledge. Special knowledge. God spoke to me and God spoke to us, but you guys are just kind of, you know, the, the riffraff. Here, come be up on our level is really their, uh, their attitude towards other people who didn't have that special knowledge. But who knows? We know the truth. You don't need a PhD in theology to know the truth, brethren. Certainly it's helpful, but you don't need a PhD in theology to, to believe upon Christ and to understand, and not maybe understand, but believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man in the one person. It's we who have this heavenly mind. He, the Son, the Son of God, has given us this understanding. He's given us a new mind that we might know God. Now, one thing that's wonderful is that this word is used in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And if you know your Bible, you know that Hebrews 8 is basically just Jeremiah 31. And Hebrews 8.10 is quoting Jeremiah 31. And what's the promise and blessing of the new covenant? That you know God. You see, what John is doing here is he's kind of wrapping up, and it's not out of the realm of what John does. He doesn't have a lot of quotes, but he's got a lot of allusions. And I do believe Based on what we see in Hebrews 8, he is alluding to the fact that in Christ we have the fulfillment of the new covenant. We have the fulfillment uh, uh, and the promise that is fulfilled in him that this covenant cannot be broken. And it's we who know God. We see the new covenant is that covenant of grace. How, does, how do we know God? As we talked about yesterday in our Saturday study, we know God by way of covenant. And so it is Christ who is the covenant mediator who comes and fulfills the terms of what we call the covenant of redemption that we might have the covenant of grace offered to us that we might know God. We know God according to the terms of that new covenant, not these other men. Here's what God has said concerning who he is and it is we who know him by the power of the spirit. So we know the son of God. He has given us an understanding and then notice the content of what we ought to know. What is our understanding? Sorry. What's the thing we understand? That we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. Notice again, there is a recognition. There's this knowing God. We know him who is true. We know him who is real. Now, this certainly alludes back to the one true God that we see in the Old Testament, the one who is abounding in mercy and truth, Exodus 34, as God appears to Moses or reveals himself to Moses. We know that he is the God of truth in Isaiah 65, the real God, the one true God, as opposed to false gods. He is the real one. And it is we who know this one who is true. We know the real God. They know false gods. We know the one true God in Christ, and their view of Christ indicates something that they actually don't know Christ at all, do they? 
They might use the name Jesus, but in reality, what they worship is an idol. In reality, what they worship is one who is not God at all. To say that Jesus did not come in the flesh is to deny who Jesus is. They might use the name Jesus, but in reality, they are worshiping an idol. And certainly with Exodus 34 and Isaiah 65 in the background, contrasting with false gods, there's the one true God and we know him. We know the one true God in Jesus Christ. And not only that, we are in him who is true. We know him and we are united to him. We know him and we have fellowship with him. First John 1. And again, these heretics were saying, we have fellowship with God by way of our experience. Brethren, you don't have to have some mystical experience. Believe upon Christ. Believe on Jesus. Cling to his word. And you can know and you should know that you are in him who is true. You are united to him who is true. You are united to this one who is eternal life. And we know him who is true. And notice how. In his son, Jesus Christ. We know the one true God through Jesus Christ. Who is the way to the Father? It is the Son. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you do not know Christ, you do not know God. You must know Christ in order to know the one true God because he is true God and eternal life. One of the clearest passages that highlights the deity of Christ, this, referring to Jesus, this is true God and eternal life. We see that there is one God. So we highlight the essence. We recognize there is only one in being. But also John is doing some Trinitarian distinction here, isn't he? I mean, he says, him who is true, referring to the Father, in his Son, Jesus Christ, referring to the Son, and the Son is also true God. There's clearly a distinction between him who is true and his Son, but then highlighting and driving to the point that Jesus is true God, and Jesus is eternal life. And life has come up throughout this book, right? I mean, God, himself, God in himself has life in himself. God was pleased to create life at creation, and God is pleased to give life, eternal life in the Son, and it is only in him that one can have everlasting life. I mean, he highlights that in 1 John 5, and uh, even driving to the point that you might know that you have uh, eternal life that you believe those who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know you have eternal life why because it's in the son if you have Christ you have eternal life if you do not have Christ you are dead and then he closes with an exhortation that seems to come out of left field if you're like me have you ever read first John and then you come to this exhortation like whoa where did that come from I mean this is nice a good end why can't he just end here this is the true God and eternal life but then he still does end with verse 24 uh, 21 little children keep yourselves from idols amen well he's being nice about it <laughs> little children uh, now this exhortation is founded upon the truths that we've seen in verses 18 through 20 but as far as ending a sermon goes, it is quite potent, isn't it? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You're kind of jarred. What, is it, what does he mean by that very thing? Well, idols in the Old Testament, you know, various nations worshipped false gods. Certainly those are idols. But idols also signify when one worships God in an ungodly and unrealistic way. 
That is, we see that when Aaron made the golden calf, what did he say? Look, Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see, it's the representative of their gods. It is making it, it's a downgrading God by making these false idols. And God had disclosed himself, revealed himself to the people of Israel and saying, I am the one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves false idols. So I believe idols in general could likely be in view. Anything that does not honor God, certainly. But if we move more towards that specific definition of anything that misrepresents the one true God, I think a specific idol is in view here. You know what it is? Christological heresy. That's why I think the idol is here. Denying who Jesus is. Because if you deny who Jesus is, what are you doing? You're worshiping an idol. One writer highlights and connects this idea. He says, it's not so much the image itself, but the unreality of what is represented. A truth versus a phantom. What were these heretics saying? I was trying to prime your pump by reminding us about the heretics and what they were saying. And I even used the term idol throughout the sermon as well, a few times as well to prime the pump. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from going away from that thing which is true in Christ Jesus. That is the exhortation, isn't it? That is the final command is really the opposite thing would be worship Christ. Know your Christ, honor Christ, glorify Christ, but keep yourselves from Christological heresy. Don't deny the deity of Christ. That's Arianism. Don't deny the humanity of Christ. That is what we see with docetism or pre-docetism here in 1 John. Don't deny that the natures conflate. That's called Eutychianism. Don't do that. Don't, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, don't believe the natures conflate. Don't believe that he is two persons. He is one human person and one. There's two who's. Don't say there's two who's and two what's. That denies the unity of the person. There are so many heresies, aren't there? And we have to be watchful against them. Don't deny the two wills. Human will and a divine will. Don't do that very thing, brethren. Don't deny Christ. Don't, uh, uh, don't deny who he is. That is what I think is in view here. It's a specific command. Really, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the opposite being... Cling to Christ. Cling to who he is. Don't worship a false idol. And again, people use the name Jesus many times, but they do not worship the one true Christ, do they? Many use the name Jesus, but they have no idea who he is. Even evangelicals today more and more are denying the deity of Christ. That is idolatry because it misrepresents who Jesus is. It denigrates who Jesus is. Little children, keep yourselves from idols is teaching us to be a people who know and love Christ as he is revealed in his word. That is the application, isn't it? That's the whole application of the entire book. Cling to Christ. Keep yourselves from idols. Henry says, the God whom you have known is he who made you, who redeemed you by his son, who has sent his gospel to you, who has pardoned your sins, begotten you unto himself by his spirit and given you eternal life. Cleave to him in faith and love and constant obedience in opposition to 
all things that would alienate your mind and heart from God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And if you're an unbeliever here today, turn from your idols to the true and living God. Only in him is there eternal life. Know him. Know him by faith. Believe upon him. Accept that he is the son of God. Accept that he is the Christ. And you shall have eternal life. If not, you shall die in your trespasses and sins because you worshipped idols. Again, brethren, you know the one true God. You know Jesus Christ. Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the revelation of you, the communication of your salvation, the communication of you in the one who is the word. And we're thankful that that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. And we are thankful that he is the one who is true God and eternal life and that we have life in him, that we know you that we have understanding, we, have, we know that we are yours uh, according to what you have revealed. We know that you work in us and give us those new minds and new hearts. It is what you have done that we might see our need for Christ, see who he is, believe upon him and be saved. And we ask and pray that we would keep ourselves from idols, that we would be watchful, that we would be on guard, that we would um, be careful not to fall into some sort of Christological heresy, which is idolatry. We ask and pray that you would help us to certainly not be able to comprehend the hypostatic union, but make sure we confess it and confess it aright, especially as we know him who is true and we know the one true God. So thank you for what you have revealed. Thank you for men of old in history who have dealt with the various heresies that have arisen, who have formed helpful summaries of what the scriptures say regarding who Jesus is. And may we confess this one who is God. May we confess that Jesus is the Christ and is the Son of God and help us to be assured of all the things that you've given to us because of him. Help us to be assured of who we are because of what he has done. Help us to be assured that we are no longer characterized by sin. Help us to be assured that we are a heavenly people. Help us to be assured that we are no longer under the sway of the devil. We've been uh, released uh, we are once sons of disobedience. We were once children of wrath, but now we have been made alive uh, in you uh, because of Christ Jesus. So thank you for what you've done. Thank you for Christ. May we be a people who love Christ, cling to Christ, love and know who he is. Protect us and keep us, we pray. Save sinners, strengthen your saints. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ.